0: Hello and welcome to the Paradise Cine Podcast. This is one of my film festival creation episodes where I invite a guest to select seven films for the six-day-long Utopia Film Festival. I will also ask them for their Sunday day off film, their snack and guest of their choosing. This will be followed by the After Credits Film Quiz for a spot on the Paradise Cine Wall of Fame. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Utopia Film Festival. I'm your host Liam Mason and today I'm joined by my guest Martin Poole. Graduating from Bournemouth University with a degree in international business management, Martin has built a reputation for being a calm and committed figurehead in what can be a highly stressful career in project management, where he is currently PMO manager at Civica. Outside of work, Martin, or Tony to his friends, for reasons I've yet to fully understand, is a keen fan of football, one in particular Reading FC, and he can regularly be seen with a football shirt as part of his attire. Outside of football, he is a keen traveller of the world, with his long-term partner in crime, L, and the pair are also regular visitors to the Glastonbury and 2000 Tree Music Festivals. Although he wouldn't describe himself as a film buff, he's very kindly stepped up to the plate when one of my original guests was unable to make it due to the current world situation, allowing me to continue living my midlife crisis. So let us welcome him to the Utopia Film Festival. Hello, Martin.
1: Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me and and for that very generous introduction.
0: Years of practice that takes. Did a whole degree in script writing. Uh, Well, I say degree, it was a 12-week course. You, of course, extremely well-travelled, and uh, there doesn't seem to be more than a month before I see photos of you in a place that wasn't England. Uh, what's been your biggest highlight in the last five years?
1: That's a tough one. Um, in the last five years, um, I probably have to, have to say uh, travelling around Japan was a highlight. So, uh, yeah, I went to a few different places in Japan, but um, there was one day in particular we hiked up to the peak of, uh, I, I was trying to pronounce this right, Mi- Miyajima. I think it's Miyajima. Um, which is uh, a tiny little island um, just off the coast of Hiroshima. So we, we went to the peak of there and, um, yeah, hard work, but, um, yeah, stunning once you get to the top looking over Hiroshima. And then, yeah, that evening as well, we had a, we had a great night in Hiroshima. Um, it's a great city, really friendly, vibrant place. Ended up in a rock bar um, with some other people that had been to Miyajima. So spent uh, spent some time in there. And at the end of the night, the barman closes up and takes, takes us all to a karaoke bar, pays for it, pays for it, us to get in, pays for all our drinks. So we spent all our money in his bar and then he took us out and spent it back on us. So so that was a, that was a cool. highlight.
0: <laughs> ah, some people have all the luck. Although you say um, you're not a film buff, was film a big thing for you when you were growing up or is it more of a, a background thing?
1: A, a background thing, really. I mean... I had some films on, on VHS. I had you know, I had Jurassic Park Labyrinth, Dennis, a few other sort of kids films um, that I'd watch over and over again but um, yeah didn't didn't really go to the cinema as a kid only a handful of times really. Um, and then yeah as I got a bit older I obviously started to go to the cinema a bit more. but I just think I just generally prefer to watch a film over anything that's generally on TV, I'd say a film fan without being a film buff.
0: Fair enough. So before uh, this episode, I asked you to send me a list of your seven films. Is there a particular theme for it or is it just your seven favourite films?
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty much it's pretty much just my favourites. You know, once I sent you the list, I thought oh, I could have had that. I could have had that. So on another day, I might have sent you a different list. But it's pretty much just my favourites. For the final day, I've sort of thought about the fact that you'd be watching, you know, two films back to back. But uh, other than that, it's just my favourites pretty much.
0: Okay, uh, we'll get this going with your opener then. Your day one film, what have you chosen and why?
1: Okay, so I've gone for Jurassic Park. The
0: 1993 film directed by Steven Spielberg. Why did you pick Jurassic Park?
1: I think it's um, it's the first film I ever saw in the cinema, so quite strong memories of going to see that with my dad. And it's just a great film. It's just, um, you know, it's one of the great films of all time, in my opinion. It still holds up today. It's still very rewatchable. Great cast, lots of great quotes, lots of great scenes. Yeah, you can't really go wrong with it, can
0: you? Obviously, it's spawned quite a number of sequels over the years. I think the third in the new trilogy is due to come out next year. But one of the things that is noticeable is none of the sequels really come close to being as well received or referenced as much as the original. No. So what would you say this film has that the sequels and reboots are missing?
1: I suppose the big thing it's got over over the, uh, the sequels is originality. You know, once you've made Jurassic Park, then any follow-up is, is then compared to it, isn't it? So, you know, when you're being compared to, you know, one of the best films of all time, uh, <laughs> in my opinion, then you're always going to struggle a bit, aren't you? So I, th- I think that's it. It's the originality. I mean, it's set the bar for dinosaur movies, um, and then and then anything else is just compared to it. It's never going to be quite as well-received. I actually think The Lost World isn't bad. So you've got, you know, the original story, you know, of the park failing and then a follow-up going back to the island where the the dinosaurs are roaming freely. You know, that's a decent idea for a Um, follow-up. And as I say, I think The Lost World isn't bad. But once you've done that, once you've done those two things, where else is there to go, really? So you've got Jurassic Park 3, which is essentially the scenes of Alan Grant and the two kids from the first film. You know those scenes where they're together trying to survive. You know Jurassic Park three is basically that for the entire film, and then the, the the Jurassic Park the Jurassic World sorry reboot it just goes over the same arc again, doesn't it? So the park fails, and then they go back to the island with the dinosaurs roaming free. So it's just it's the same arc again, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you can only only go to the same island so many times before people are like, yes, we've seen this. We want something a bit newer. I recently rewatched a film that happened to be on like a couple of days yeah. ago, and it still holds up really well despite being almost 30 years old. Do you think films like this are fondly remembered as they're not too CGI heavy? I, I do remember Jurassic Park being quite a lot of animatronics and not that much CGI.
1: Yeah, I think that's, a, that's, that's another really big thing uh, with the original. You know, the use of the animatronics, I think, is really important. You know, the, the fact that the actors are actually interacting with, with a physical thing, you know, an actual, well, not an actual dinosaur, but, you know what I mean, they, you know, when they interact with the T-Rex, they are actually interacting with that physical object. You know, so, for example, the scene where the T-Rex is attacking uh, Lex and Tim in the, in the Explorer, when, when the T-Rex has just escaped... So apparently, when the when the T-Rex comes down in, and the uh, you, you remember the scene where the uh, where the glass the, the glass roof collapses on them. Apparently, the uh, the screams and the terror in, in Lex and Tim's face that's actually genuine because the animatronic actually did come into the car and it wasn't really supposed to. Apparently, uh, it wasn't actually supposed to knock the the put the, the flexi glass off of the roof. So when that comes in and they scream, that is real because you know that the giant robot actually did break it and it came way further into the car than they were expecting. You can't get that was you know that genuine genuine interaction with the CGI and then and then you've got another scene uh, you know with the sick Triceratops you know the, the way you know Dr Grant and um, uh, and Laura Dern's character who I've momentarily forgotten uh, the name of um, you know they're actually interacting at um, Ellie yeah Ellie, Ellie Sattler, that's it. So, you know, where Dr. Grant's leaning on it, uh, you know, the scene where he's leaning on it and he's like going up and down with the breathing, you know, that is, he's genuinely doing that, you know, with the robot. And I think across a two hour film, you know, little details like that, where the interactions are genuine, makes a really big difference to how it kind of feels, you know, compared to Chris Pratt talking to a tennis ball on a stick in the, uh, in the Jurassic World reboots. Yeah,
0: it's not quite the same, is it? It's all well and good when he's interacting, and he, he does an okay job, but yeah, I think I would agree. Uh, when you're seeing you Neil know, going up and down, up and down, and you're like, oh, man, that looks so amazing. Yeah. I imagine it would be terrifying, though, if we did make dinosaurs. <laughs> I can only imagine bad things. Like Every single film, it's like no Jurassic Park film has ever been like, look at these amazing animals, aren't they great? Oh, no, wait, they're killing yeah. us all um
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there's there's lots of great stories about about the animatronics in you know in the original Jurassic Park. How um you know every time it rained, you know the T-Rex went haywire and would start coming to life and stomping around the set and things.
0: I imagine you would absolutely you know wet yourself if you just sat there having some lunch and all of a sudden your animatronic starts moving towards you, like uh no <laughs>
1: yeah definitely i mean that's that's what i mean you know there there are stories where they say you know people would literally start screaming <laughs> because it would start walking across the room
0: so that was an all-time classic for your first choice we now move on to day two and your second film choice what have you selected
1: so i've gone for another another bit of a blockbuster um independence day
0: Independence Day, the uh, 1996 film by Roland Emmerich. Why did you select this
1: one? Again, similar to Jurassic Park, um, I think it's, it's one of the early blockbusters that I remember watching. And it's, again, I think it just sort of sets the bar for its genre. I do like sci-fi. I do like alien invasion as a, as a genre. And for me, this is the best example of that kind of story.
0: Do you think that nostalgia is the reason this is fondly remembered? Because we all remember watching it growing up.
1: Yeah, that is a bit of it. Um and, and that's that's part of the reason I've I've picked it. I think a lot of people, you know, our age would, would maybe pick it as one of their top films. Um, you know, the kind of film, you know, if you see it's on, you're you're gonna watch it. Um, you know, you can't it's one of those, isn't it? I think. Obviously you've got Jeff Goldblum appears again, you know, who doesn't like a film with Jeff Goldblum in it. His performance <laughs> is great and then, you know, Will Smith again. A bit of a nostalgia thing, people our age, you know, love Will Smith, don't they remember him in Fresh Prince? And so his classic movie roles are, are sort of always well received by people, people of a certain age. But apart from nostalgia, I just think it's um, it's a really well paced action film. It's got a great cast, great characters. As I said, science fiction element of it, I'm a fan of. You know, it's Top Gun with aliens in places, isn't it? You know, what what's not to like about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's also got, uh, you know, no matter how many times you rewatch it, it's got one of the best jump scare scenes in film history, isn't it? I think you know the scene where they're performing the autopsy on the um, on the alien that um, that uh, Stephen Hill has brought down. They've got it on the on the metal bench, and they're slowly cutting it open, aren't they? And all of a sudden, the chest. Poof, like no matter how many times you watch that, it makes you jump, doesn't it? I think so. So it's got that going for it.
0: I think also That's... where uh, he appears on the glass. Uh, after the attack in yes. the autopsy room. And yeah. then later on, they're in there, and yeah. he just wham against the glass. You're like, oh,
1: crap. That's right, uh, yeah. Quite chilling, that, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no peace. Yeah. When they realise, isn't it, that they're, they're not messing around. No no peace. We're here to take you over. Yeah, I mean, some of the CGI, you know, talking about CGI in Jurassic Park, I think some of the CGI in this looks a little bit ropey now, but only in a handful of scenes. I think on, on the whole, it's still it still looks pretty good. Um, you know, the, the scene where they, they enter the mothership for the first time, I still think look, looks really great even now, they fly in, don't they, they see all the millions down there, it's like, look at them, millions of them what the hell are they doing, that, you know, that scene um, still looks incredible
0: Again, this is almost 25 years old and it, it's phenomenal you see some CGI in films, you're like, oh, that's a bit ropey now but you look at that and it's like, actually, that's that's pretty impressive the film also features one of the most iconic extras with the salute guy do you think the film plays with the goofiness of patriotism
1: yeah i think what american action film doesn't do that really they're always that aren't they <laughs> um i think you've, you've always got to take that element of a of a u.s action film with a pinch of salt it's always usa saviors of the world isn't it i suppose all right they they made the film so i suppose they can have it you know <laughs> Yeah, it does I mean the, the the scene in Independence Day in particular, you know, the, the one where the you know they plan their attack, don't they? They've got the virus idea and they're planning to shoot down, you know, the sort of uh, child ships, if you like. And there's there's the scene where the news has got to England and you've got two posh English boys it's like, Oh, the Americans have a plan. Like, oh well it's about bloody time. It's like, you know like like they were just <laughs> sat in a bunker waiting for America to come up with a solution. Um,
0: but that is the sort of uh ho American style. I think, yeah, films like this are fondly remembered because you can say you can look back on them and say, That is quite goofy. Um and yeah. that is part of its charm. Okay, yeah, there are scary bits, but there are other bits where it's like, Wink wink, we know this is a little bit of a gag to yeah. break up the action slash
1: scares. I think they're definitely more self aware of it now, aren't they? And they sort of poke fun at themselves, but I you think know, deep down they, they mean it though, don't they? I think.
0: <laughs> exactly. A trip down memory lane for your second choice. So we're going to move on to day three now,
1: which is? It's a South Park movie, bigger, longer and uncut. Yeah, the
0: 1999 film directed by Trey Parker, also with Matt Stone. Why did you pick South Park?
1: I think I had in my thinking with this one a kind of um, desert island disc scenario. Um, I, I know that's not—I know that's not strictly the scenario of, the, of, of your podcast. It's a film festival. It's
0: borrowed heavily. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But um, that was the kind of thinking of it. Really, I was like, "Well, I need—I'd I'd like to have a comedy in here." And I think it's just for me—it's just a really re, you know rewatchable comedy. You know, the humour is so juvenile, and <laughs> you know, it's never not going to be funny. Um, in my opinion, so that's why I've gone for it really.
0: A lot of cartoons don't really translate well into feature length adaptations, but this is one that did. What is about this film, well this show rather, that helped it translate to a bigger setting?
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, I think I think there's a few elements that sort of come together to make it work, really. So I think first of all, maybe the fact that they only they only actually had two seasons of the TV show under their belt when they made the movie, so it was you know it was still quite a new and fresh thing, and you know still fresh ideas and something we hadn't seen too much of. Compare it to The Simpsons, who'd run for eighteen seasons before they made their movie, um, and you know it was already well past its peak, um, in my opinion. Whereas you know South Park was still still quite new on the block, um, and as I said before, I think just the juvenile nature of it all possibly helps it. I think with other cartoon films, possibly you know because it, the the running time is extended compared to a single episode, I think sometimes there's a tendency to try and force some sort of character development or story arc that you just you wouldn't see in a standalone episode, and, and then that becomes a little jarring because it's not what you're used to watching. You know these characters do, but with South Park, I, I don't think it really does that. It, it basically is everything you'd expect from a single episode but just with a longer running time it's still got got the juvenile humor it's got some political angles and the show itself it, it quite often has two or three episodes that tell a single story and the seasons themselves tend to have an arc that runs from start to finish as well which you don't get with other animated shows which tend to be you know just standalone episodes so i think all those things help it translate to a movie a bit more readily than some other animated stuff
0: The film doesn't really hold back either in terms of its rude jokes, but it does them in a very satirical way. Do you think that if they were to do this film again for the first time, uh, let's say a couple of years ago, it would have been completely lost um, and it would have been sort of a bit more of a bomb than it actually was?
1: um I'm, I'm not sure about that to be honest i think you know south park the tv show i think it's still going strong it's certainly still being made i assume it's still going fairly strong mm. well, they wouldn't keep making it so i mean the, the tv show is still popular i think some of the humor in the in the in the tv shows now is a little bit more subtle probably maybe but then again, they're, they're, you know they're still not shy about throwing around, you know, the kind of jokes that you'd have seen earlier on and was in the movie, the satirical stuff. You know, in in the film, um, obviously a lot of it is aimed at Saddam Hussein, and the TV show now is relentless um, at the expense of Donald Trump. So you know, it's still similar kind of political humour to it. So uh, you know, so based on the continued success of the TV show, I think I think the movie would probably do all right today. Still, to be honest.
0: So, after that delightfully rude selection, we are reaching the halfway point. What film have you selected for day four?
1: Um, So, I've gone for Seeking a Friend for the End of the World.
0: Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, directed by Lorenz Skabaria from 2012. Now, I have to admit, I had not actually heard of this film, so if you give a brief outline... Because I saw bits of it and I saw what the premise was and I found it quite interesting.
1: Yes, yeah, so for those not familiar with it. So it's it's an end of the world scenario. The film opens um, as it's announced that the last attempt to divert an asteroid heading for Earth has failed um, and the asteroid's going to hit in three weeks' time. So there's going to be no um, USA saving the world in this one. Um, it's The last attempt to, to divert has failed. Um, it's definitely going to hit in three weeks' time. And then so the film focuses on some everyday people um, living out those those three weeks that they've got left, and and it's primarily the characters played by Steve Carell and um, Kira Knightley. Uh,
0: in preparation for this, I saw bits of it, and I found it it was quite weirdly hopeful, before, despite uh, it being a world ending setting. Do you think that's the overall vibe of the film?
1: Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I describe it as hopeful, just in the sense that. You know it is a world where you know the population has sort of accepted its fate um you know there isn't there isn't going to be a last minute rescue and everybody knows that i think uh if not hopeful i think it's maybe surprisingly upbeat given that that's the scenario but i, I think it's a pretty good guess at what would happen um you know if this was actually happening in terms of you know the, the way a lot of people are dealing with it i think it's a really good guess that what might actually happen, you know, rather than focusing on um, on the rescue attempt, you know, focusing on everyday people and how they're dealing with that scenario is what I like about the film. Um, and, I, and I think it's a pretty realistic portrayal of, of what would happen. So, I mean, yeah, you've got there's an element of, um, you know, you, you see some people rioting, looting, causing a, a level of chaos, which no doubt would be the case uh, for some people. You know, you're not, you know, you wouldn't avoid that. But you've also got the people who are just planning to party through their last three weeks, um, drink, take drugs, just generally just try and party their way through it. You've got the people that haven't quite digested it and are just trying to carry on as normal. You you know, you've got the lady that keeps turning up for work, haven't you? And it's just like, what are you doing? Go home. You've got the people that, you know, just want to hang out with their friends, trying to get to their family. And then you've got people that, you know, don't want to be there for that last day and Hire a hitman to take them out by surprise so they don't have to deal with it all.
0: That was um, one of the sections I did see, and I did find that quite amusing uh, that someone would would hire a hitman and uh, he thinks that Steve Carell's character
1: is the hitman. And he's not, he just wants a lift. Yeah, it's an interesting idea though, isn't it? You know, if you know the world's ending, do you really want to be there on that last day, or would you rather someone just popped you from behind, you know, one day and you don't know that it's coming? Uh, Yeah thought that was a really interesting sort of subplot, sub-idea.
0: It, it was. As I, as I said at the top, I'd not heard of this before you sent me the list. And as far as I could tell, the film wasn't massively publicised. Do you think that with the sort of current situation going on, it would be much better received if it was released now? Because as you've described it, it's uh, upbeat. So and um, people need a bit of upbeat considering what's going on at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, in, in general, it's upbeat. I don't want to spoil the ending for anyone, but, um, but uh, yeah, Elma on still still blames this film and the ending in particular for making her slightly less emotionally unstable to this day. It, yeah, it does have an upbeat theme running through it but it is it is also quite an emotional film i guess and it it really does build um to to that ending you know the ending the ending as a scene in and of itself is probably isn't much to write home about but as a a climax to everything that's come before it's quite quite powerful but that's uh that's diverging slightly from your question no it wasn't well publicized was it um we saw it kind of by accident really so we we are quite regular cinema goers these days and, and we literally just saw it in the um you know, in the the listings that you get in the lobby. That's the only place we saw it. thought, oh, that looks worth a go. So we went to see it. Maybe it would have done better with a bigger marketing budget. I'm not sure. It's it's not a blockbuster, big budget action movie. It's not based on a well-known book. Um, It's not based on any, you know, real-life events, real-life figures. Uh, And I'd say those three things... It it feels like every film film at the moment is one of those three things, isn't it? It's either a you know big budget blockbuster. It's based on a book. It's based on a real life historical person. You know, it's not any of those things. So the way the sort of cinema landscape is at the moment, I I doubt it would do any better. To be honest, but you know this is a film podcast. You know, uh, I guess there's film <laughs> fans listening to it. If you're a fan of film, I'd say you, you you'd probably enjoy it as a film. But um, but whether it would do well as a cinema release now. I, Probably not, to be honest.
0: It might be more of one of your uh, streaming services, shall we say. Yeah. With an overlooked film for your choice on day four, we are coming to the final three. With your day five film, what have you selected?
1: So I've gone for Catch Me If You Can.
0: The 2002 film directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Why have you chosen this one?
1: Again, rewatchability. I think. I think I'm, I've seen it. I don't know how many times, a lot of times. I just find it, you know, an engaging film. It's a kind of, it's, it's like a nice warm hug of a film, isn't it, I guess? Well, you know, for me, it would be anyway. Um, you know, I'm not big into rom-coms, so this is probably my equivalent of a warm hug of a film. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a great story. Again, it's really well-paced. It's very watchable film, some great actors, some great characters. Love Christopher Walkden, love Tom Hanks you know DiCaprio yeah great as well so
0: i always feel weird watching this film because we're essentially watching a fraudster steal money and evade the law for several years and technically he's not a hero he is very much a villain he is very much a thief but people seem to like his character what is it about people like that that as an audience we find appealing
1: i think um i think when you watch it you just kind of You have a sense of what a rush it must be to be doing all the stuff he does, along with a lot of other emotions, I'm sure. But it must be quite a rush to be doing stuff like that. You have a tendency to imagine what it would be like to do it yourself. I think you naturally do that. You imagine yourself, you know, doing all these, getting up to all these capers and you assume it would be pretty exciting, I think. I I think people like the idea that they'd be clever enough to do it themselves, but not get caught. Um, as, as is often the case <laughs> I think um, you know pe- people like the idea don't they that they, they could be the one that beats the system and, and and live a life of riches just by being smart enough to to kind of beat the man if you like I think that's I think that's what people find appealing about it and you know it, it, in this one in particular I, th- I think I'm right in saying that he only actually steals from banks you know he doesn't go mugging old ladies on the street and or anything like that so so i th- i think people kind of uh you know from a morality side of it people you know maybe people think ah oh, you know it's, it's, as long as it's a victimless crime then it's kind of okay i mean victimless crime is non existent agreed but you kind of justify it to yourself don't you because you know you're enjoying the movie well, yeah because it's
0: a bigger bigger company you're like yeah it's fine i would also say that tom hanks is in my opinion the mvp of this film playing the straight man to the more comedic Leonardo DiCaprio because he is the sort of more Jack the Lad, let's go, and Tom Hanks is like, no. Do you think he was the perfect actor to play the part?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, is Tom Hanks ever not the perfect actor to play a part? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, He pretty normally nails it, doesn't he?
0: I I, I don't know. I, I can't see Tom Hanks as maybe a John Wick. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I nice guess. Yeah, there probably maybe there's a limit to it. Yeah, he must be good at knowing what roles to turn down because he normally normally gets it right, doesn't he? So, but but yeah, I think the the dynamic between the two um, works really well. I think you know ultimately Frank Abagnale he'd rather be in Carl's shoes, wouldn't he? You know, and and Hanks does a does a really good job of portraying sort of how his character realizes that. Um, and then he uses it to his advantage, doesn't need to manipulate Frank into, into making the mistakes that, that ultimately lead to his capture. Um, you know, the way he does that is quite is quite subtle and quite believable. So, so, yeah, he does a really good job on it.
0: So we've picked a stylish crime caper for day five there. And we've now reached your double show day six and you've gone for a film and its sequel. So what is the first film in your double header?
1: Mm-hmm. so it's the silence of the lambs
0: so the classic 1991 film directed by jonathan dem why the silence of the lambs
1: I, it's, it's my it's my favorite it's my favorite horror film i'd say sort of horror slash thriller hannibal lecter you know one of the one of the all-time great characters in film the only i think i think i think it's still correct that it's the only um horror film to win to win an oscar um one of any three films, I think, to win the big is it big three or big five Oscars. Uh, big five. So still one of any three films to do that. So just a classic, brilliant, brilliant piece of film. Couldn't leave it out.
0: One fact I always find amazing about The Silence of the Lambs is the fact that Anthony Hopkins is only on screen for 16 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about his portrayal of Hannibal that makes him so memorable despite hardly featuring in the film at all?
1: yeah so i was I was thinking about this question and i thought you know i think i concluded that if i knew the exact answer to that i'd probably be in hollywood as one of the leading authorities on casting um, if i could really pinpoint <laughs> pinpoint it but um but i'll give it a go anyway so i think one of the key things is that you you really quickly buy into the fact that Lecter isn't just a isn't just a nut job he's a genius he's an unhinged genius and I don't know exactly how he does it but you know that from the first 10 seconds he's on the screen you get that that sense of menace from the fact that okay this is a really dangerous guy but it's also a guy that really knows what he's doing and i think uh, you know that really works in, in the sense that you know even though in the scenes with him and clarice there's obviously the glass the glass barrier of his cell but you still you still don't feel that she's really safe in his presence just because because of the mind games and and the way he, the way he puts across that sort of sense of menace, um, you know that 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 the barrier isn't enough to keep her safe is one of the key things that that means it's such a powerful performance. And then you've got the theme of Lecter being omniscient, sort of all knowing, you know, there's not a single thing going to get past him. You know, it's present in this film and in the sequel, and and as I say that that trait is just instantly believable in him. So that's that's why it works. And then the other thing I think. Which he which he really nails is the use of his eyes. So so I, I you know read a bit about it and um, apparently it's uh, he wanted to have a sort of lizard like quality. So, you know apparently lizards lizards only blink consciously. You know whereas we do it unconsciously, they only do it consciously. So he really nailed you know doing that in the film, and it makes you kind of makes you kind of always wonder what he's thinking. So even though he's not on screen much, doesn't say a great deal throughout the film, you're sort of always left. You know, thinking, what what's he up to? What's he thinking? What's he going to do next? So that's another reason it works. I think that's probably it, really. i say it's, it's really difficult to nail down why it works um, because it's just a genius piece of acting and I'm not an actor but uh, or a casting director. But, um, but yeah, that's some of the things that stood out for me.
0: I always like to ask difficult questions. Um, <laughs> with regards to the rest of the film, would you say that, the Silence of the Lambs required that performance from Anthony Hopkins to be as well remembered, or is it just the cherry on top of an otherwise excellent film?
1: Yeah, I think um, I, I think it needs it to be honest. He's he's by by far the most complex and developed character in the film. You know, we're told the story of Buffalo Bill, aren't we, and sort of why he is how he is, but we don't actually see you know Buffalo Bill's descent into what he's become for ourselves so you know in my opinion he's not a particularly well-developed character he's just kind of there and there's you know some brief explanation of how he got to being how he is um, in a couple of scenes but Letter's is by far the most developed character and I think um, you know even, even when Letter's not on screen as I touched on before you kind of you kind of always you've, you've always got still got him in your mind even though he's on only on screen for 16 minutes he kind of still is a presence throughout the film so you, you've got some references to things he does off screen don't you so um, you know for example when he talks Miggs, the guy in the cell next to him into swallowing his own tongue just by whispering to him you know you've got you know, things like that mean that um, even though he's not on screen you' sort of always you've always got him in the back of your mind. So I would say that it does need Lecter and Hopkins' performance, to be honest. I know Jodie Foster did win Best Actress, didn't she, as well? Best Actress Oscar. But I think, um, without wanting to be harsh to her, I think it's debatable whether she'd have won that if she didn't have the interaction with Hopkins. I think think that's definitely the standout of the film. I think it needs it. And without that, I think I'm, I'm not sure how it stands out from a lot of other films in that genre, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I think I would agree with the point that an actor that ultimately wins an Oscar only really will have that ability if they have the right cast to play off of. It's very yeah. rare that an uh, you know, an actor gets nominated purely by being the only good thing in a film. I I can't think of anything where that would be the case off the top of my head where now moving on and we know that you're picking sequel if you give your final selection for day uh, day six second film
1: uh yeah so i've gone for um hannibal
0: hannibal the 2001 film directed by ridley scott i'm quite interested to know why you picked this over red dragon
1: yeah i prefer i prefer it's a red dragon to be honest <laughs> I, th- I think it's a better film than Red Dragon. Um, maybe not a popular opinion. So it's got a lot more lecture in it than Red Dragon. Does Red Dragon have any lecture in it, actually? I can't remember. I'm not sure if it does, does it? It's, it's...
0: Yeah, Red Dragon has a bit of it. Um, a a little
1: bit. Yeah, much
0: like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. He's sort of a peripheral to Francis Dollarhyde, Yeah. Uh, who is the main villain in Red Dragon.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've only seen it one, maybe even only once, actually, possibly twice but it didn't really stick with me um, like Hannibal did, which is why I've picked it. So yeah, I've gone for Hannibal. As I say, um, this is in line with uh, the sort of theme of the pod really being a film festival. I I think it's a really underrated film, but I do think it benefits from being watched almost immediately after Silence of the Lambs, which is why I've gone for it here.
0: The only thing I find jarring about this film, because I do quite like all three of them, is the fact that Clarice Starling has been recast in the film do you think Julianne Moore does a good job compared to Jodie Foster?
1: Yeah, I think I think she does a pretty good job. I mean, you know, obviously as we said, Jodie Foster won Best Actress, so whether she does a better job, that's probably debatable. You'd probably say mm, probably not, but I think she does more than adequate job. She does a really good job, actually. I would say, you know, I think a lot of the criticism of the performance is that you know people say julianne moore you know it's not the same clarice starling you know she doesn't have the same sort of vulnerability in in silence of the lambs clarice was sort of kind of uncomfortable around men she was a little bit shy in some ways you know a little bit vulnerable whereas in Hannibal, you know she's a lot more confident um definitely not uncomfortable around men um or anything like that but you know i think that's an unfair criticism you know it's set 10 years later clarice isn't a young woman taking her first steps in the field anymore um, you know she's seen in the opening scene um, as a senior FBI agent you know leading a big drugs bust so you know of course the character has developed with the career path she's taken as an FBI agent why would she be the same person 10 years later you know,
0: I suppose the other thing that could be said about it is she has met her ultimate villain in Hannibal Lecter why would she be afraid of anybody else now
1: Yes, yeah, another element to it, definitely. Yeah, so, so the criticism of, you know, say the vulnerability and, and all that stuff, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that's fair. You know, say it's 10 years later, she's much further on in her career. She she maintains a lot of the other, you know, the key values of Clarice, you know, the, the moral values, the fact she's fascinated by Lecter still is obvious. You know, all the things that Lecter sees in, in the original Clarice are still there in, in Julianne Moore's Clarice.
0: Not only that, a lot of critics were disappointed by this sequel, mainly for other reasons other than Julianne Moore. Would you say it's unfair to compare this to Silence of the Lambs because they're two very different stories set at two very different times?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, like I say comparing the, the two films as closely as a lot of critics seem to have done just isn't fair. So, you know, the, the, the comparisons of the two Clarices is one element of that. But you know, there are I think there are other comparisons made between the two that are just pointless when you consider the fact that it is ten years later. You know, Lecter himself isn't a prisoner anymore. He's been free for all that time. Um, it's a completely different setting for him. You know, he hasn't he hasn't got that sort of prison mentality anymore. I think at the end of the day, um that's part of the part of the appeal for me really. So at the end of at the end of Silence of the Lambs, you you know, as you said, he's only on screen for sixteen minutes. You you want more Lecter, don't you? And And that's what this film gives you Uh, again as i said i think it definitely benefits from being watched immediately afterwards it's an extension of the same story between Lecter and clarice and you know there are some small details in there some references that would be pretty easy to miss if you hadn't watched silence of the lambs for for a while there are definitely some sort of easter eggs references in there that would be easy to miss um if it wasn't fresh in your mind and say that's why i've picked it in this format you know the idea that we'd watch it back to back I would hope that in in that setting, uh, maybe maybe we could win some people round to the idea of Hannibal actually being pretty pretty good. You know, I could I could I could talk about, I could talk about Hannibal for ages because it annoys me that it's so underrated. To be honest, you've got um, <laughs> you, you know the first half of it in particular is is an outstanding film in my opinion. Incredible shots of Florence, along with the hands. You know, the Hans Zimmer score really stays with me, never more so in in the opera scene. You know the shots of Florence coming into that opera scene and the score, I forget the name of the song, it's still in my head now, I rewatched watched it like a week ago and it's still in my head now and it always does that for me. It's an incredible scene, you know, you've got the say the shots of Florence, you've got that song the shots of the opera happening on the stage and then, you know, in amongst all that you've got the, comes in on Lecter's face and you see him getting sort of annoyed because he knows that Inspector Patsy is staring at him and the sort of menace comes to the scene like in amongst all the sort of beauty of it, and he shoots in that stare, doesn't he? Looks round at him and it's like, well, then, then you know. Yeah, so, yeah, that menace, like, it's, it's, um, it's a classic piece of, of um, Lecter, isn't it? You know, that menace um, in amongst that, you know, really beautiful scene. The first half of it in Florence, you know, the the, the sort of cat and mouse with Patsy and the, the finale to that, if you like, where, you know, Patsy meets his end, that is those final couple of scenes before... He's thrown off that balcony uh, is some classic Lector as good as good as anything in Silence of the Lambs. I would say I, I will concede that um, once once he's out of Florence and comes to to the US, it, it loses its way a little bit. I think the shopping mall scene in particular is is dreadful. Apart from the fact it doesn't make any sense, um, just visually it's so out of touch with anything that that came before it. So that's a really really bad scene. But but I think it, it you know by the end you know the, the closing scenes sort of brings it back and uh, the ending in the film is preferable to the novel in my opinion as well.
0: The ending is quite I I've always liked the ending especially because it's so Well, it's really goofy I would say but it's also quite menacing having you know sitting on a plane next to a child
1: It's yeah. completely oblivious yeah, yeah definitely it's a, it's a good ending but. Um, yeah, the final scene with Lecter and Clarice as well in the kitchen, where it's like he's got the, he's got the carving knife, and it's like, oh, he's not gonna do, he's not gonna do that to her, surely. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a real I think it's a, it's a great ending because it sort of hammers home their relationship, doesn't it? It's um, it's it's their relationship in a nutshell. That final scene between them.
0: Someone uh, said to me once, it's a really weird love film between Clarice and Hannibal. I I can see why they would say that. Yeah,
1: definitely. And as as I say, I think um, the novel goes even more in that direction. Um, So I I I think the ending of the film is preferable to the novel, I think.
0: Okay, that's your seven films for our viewing public to enjoy. As a personal thanks and a reward, I'm offering you a private screening for the Sunday. You get to pick a film of your choosing from the seven that you have selected, a luxurious snack and a special guest to join you. So, first of all, what film are you selecting?
1: Um, so, yeah, given, given everything that's sort of going on and has gone on in the world, um, for the last, the last three or four months I've gone for the comedy, so let's have a laugh and, and go for South Park, I think.
0: Excellent. And your snack of choice?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a creature of habit and I always have the same snack when we go to the cinema, uh, which is a bag of reason chocolate juice. <laughs> Finally, your special guest. Yeah, the special guest. I did think, oh, should I say Saddam Hussein? That'd be, it'd be quite funny to watch it with him, wouldn't it? We'll see what he thinks of it. But um, but no, I don't I don't really want to spend any time with him. So um, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go. I've gone for Bob Mortimer. I could give you a different answer every day, probably, but I'll go for Bob Mortimer. Um, I think it's his kind of humour, isn't it? I think he'd enjoy it. And I, and I do like his, uh, his Atletico Mints podcast. So... If that's anything to go by, I think he'd definitely enjoy South Park the movie, and, and I'd like to meet him. So I'll go for Bob Mortimer.
0: Excellent. Well, there's still a bit of time before your transport is here to take you back home. How about we do a quiz? Hello, Martin, and welcome to the After Credits Film Quiz. Each of my guests are challenged by me on their specialist subject and some random film questions that I have created. You will face 10 questions on your specialist subject, which are worth one point each. There will be a 20-second time limit on each answer, so take your time, but not too much. After your 10 questions, you will face a set of five random questions based on a theme. These are worth two points each because they are random, but beware. After I ask the first question, you only have 60 seconds to complete the five questions. You can pass and return to the questions later and can take as many guesses as you like, but once the time is up, they are gone forever. If you score 15 or more in the quiz, you will earn yourself a star on the Paradise Cine Wall of Fame for all to see. Score the maximum 20 and the film festival gets renamed in your honour. Do you understand the rules?
1: Yes, I do. I'm I'm nervous about this. I really want to do well.
0: Excellent. So, Martin, first I will need your specialist subject.
1: Uh, So, Jurassic Park.
0: We now have two options for your themed questions, and they are kings and queens or space. Oh, uh,
1: we'll go space.
0: So, first of all, we will do your ten questions on Jurassic Park. Are you ready? Okay. Question one. What is the name of the fictional island where the film is largely set?
1: Okay, um I always pronounce this wrong. It's Is Isla Nublar.
0: Correct. Question two. What phrase is on the banner that falls on the T Rex during the film's climax?
1: Um it's Oh is it is It's when when dinosaurs ruled the Earth, something like that.
0: Correct. Question three. What food is Lex eating when the velociraptors arrive in the dinner hall?
1: Oh, it it wobbles on a spoon, doesn't it? The jelly. Yes, correct.
0: Question four. When showing the guests a video explaining how the park's dinosaurs were made, John Hammond is joined on screen by a cartoon character. What is its name?
1: That is Mr. DNA.
0: Correct. Question five: What item does Dodgson give Dennis Nedry to help him smuggle embryos out of the park?
1: Uh, it's a can of uh, shaving foam, isn't it? Correct. I, th- I thought it was whipped cream for so many years, but it's shaving foam.
0: <laughs> yeah, I also thought it was cream until I rewatched it for this quiz, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no, it's shaving foam!" Years, years, I thought it was cream. Um, oh. Question six, what type of dinosaur is found sick by the characters during the guided tour of the park?
1: Uh, We talked about it, the Triceratops.
0: Correct. Uh, Question seven, what branch of mathematics does Dr. Ian Malcolm specialise in?
1: Uh, So he's a chaos theorist.
0: Correct. I should have gone harder. (laughs) (laughs) Question eight, what are the final words of Park Warden Muldoon when he is cornered by a velociraptor?
1: Oh, Clever Girl. Correct.
0: Question nine. During the guided tour, what is the name of the first breed of dinosaur that no-shows, but later causes the demise of Dennis Nedry?
1: Uh, Yeah, this is another one I struggle to pronounce. It's a Dilophosaurus.
0: I'm always kind with pronunciation because I'm terrible at it, but yes, that is correct.
1: Yeah, the, the the spitter, yeah, yeah.
0: So, for the full house, question 10. What phrase does the avatar of Dennis Nedry say when Ray Arnold inputs the incorrect code for a third time attempting to bring the park security back online?
1: Ah, ah, ah. You didn't say the magic word.
0: Correct. You have got 10 from 10 on your specialist subject. So happy with that. You are the first person to get 10 out of 10. So, well done.
1: I spent ages... um... Researching the uh, or memorising the names of the cast because that's what I'm always really bad at is remembering who plays who. But um, <laughs> yeah, didn't need it.
0: Yeah, I tend to do the um, the specialist subject on content rather than saying who was the second yeah. line producer uh, because frankly, if you knew that, then I'm well out of my depth. Right. So your bonus questions. Let's just set up the timer. Uh, this this is quite nerve wracking because. You may be renaming my film festival. (laughs) So, your theme is space. Uh, So, after I ask this first question, you have 60 seconds. Remember, you can answer as many times as you like. I will say when you're correct, and we'll move on.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, If you want to pass, just say pass, and we'll return to it later on. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Question one. Which part of the anatomy is the weak spot of the Cannibal Clowns in Killer Clowns from Outer Space?
1: No, no idea. Um, pass.
0: What is the name of the villainous basketball team in the 1996 film Space Jam? Pass. What is the piece of stationery that the character Milton is possessive of in Office Space?
1: Pen. Nope. Ruler. Nope. Baker.
0: Correct. What song does Hal 9000 sing as he is shut down in 2001 at Space Odyssey? Pass. Finally, what rank does Matt LeBlanc's Don West hold in Lost in Space?
1: Lieutenant. Nope. Commander. Nope. Captain. Nope. Vice Captain. No. <laughs> uh, Uh, let's go back to the
0: anatomy one. Some guesses. Oh, and Just your some time questions. it your time is up. Right, I'm afraid take, that is your minute. Oh, I I felt for you. I felt for you because I was really confident, and then yeah. So question one was which part of the anatomy is the weak spot of the cannibal clowns in Killer Clowns from Outer Space? It's their noses. Okay. The name of the villainous basketball team in Space Jam was the Monstars. Okay. Uh, what song does How 9000 sing as he is shut down in 2001 A Space Odyssey? It's Daisy Bell. And the final question, what rank does Matt LeBlanc's Don West hold in Lost in Space? He is a major.
1: Oh, major. Oh, I could have guessed that another day. Yeah, none the wiser, to be honest. Not. Not. Uh, not... I should probably should have gone Kings and Queens.
0: And that noise is the sound of your departure from Paradise Cine. I can tell you your festival has been a success with the viewing public, and I thank you for your help in setting all this up. Before you go, if people wanted to find out more about you, where could you be found?
1: Oh, um, so I'm on Twitter, um, MJP Royal. But yeah, don't don't expect a lot in terms of content. but But yeah, that's where I am. Oh, if uh, if you're a football shirt collector, my retro football shirt's on eBay. That's me.
0: Cool. Well, thank you, Martin, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Tune in next week where I will ask another guest to create their version of the Utopia Film Festival. Until next time, this has been the Paradise City Podcast.